You're listening to The Rights Pod, a podcast by the Center for Human Rights and International Justice at Stanford University. If you're interested in human rights, then you're listening to The Rights Pod. I'm Alina Utrada, and this is The Rights Pod. So this is the very first episode of The Rights Pod. Each week, students from the Center for Human Rights will be sitting down to answer your key human rights questions. From what does a career in human rights actually look like? To how should schools teach the history of human rights? To even whether the wizarding world of Harry Potter upholds human rights standards. The episode you are listening to today is the first in a series called Notes from Alumni. In Notes from Alumni, I'm going to sit down with graduates of the Human Rights Minors program at Stanford and ask them what life has been like in the immediate years after graduation. For our very first episode, I sat down with two members from the class of 2019, Anjali Kata and Gabrielle Torres Lorenzotti. This June marks one year since Anjali and Gabby have graduated Stanford, and for both Anjali and Gabby, coronavirus has disrupted their plans for their first year after Stanford. In fact, both of them would be abroad right now if it wasn't for the global pandemic. Anjali and Gabby talked to me about the values and perspectives that they used to shape their own educational journey at Stanford, and how those same perspectives are helping them shape their journey now. You're listening to The Rights Pod. Hi, everybody. So we're here today with Anjali Kata and Gabby Torres Lorenzotti. So Anjali, could you tell us uh, where you're calling us from? Sure. Um, Hi, I'm Anjali Kata. I'm from Vancouver, Canada, where I am right now. And Gabby, where are you calling in from? I'm calling in from Brooklyn, New York. So... Both of you guys graduated in 2018, 2019? 2019. 2019. Um, So um, could you just give us like a 30-second introduction um, to who you are, what you studied, um, and just a little little flavor of what you're doing now? Okay, um, I'll go. Um, I studied engineering physics, and I minored in human rights, and I did my thesis through CDDRL, the Center for Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law, with Gabby. Um, (laughs) And after I graduated, I felt like I needed a bit of a break, so I traveled um, in India and Southeast Asia for six months, and then I was going to work in Indonesia for two months, but I had to leave after a month uh, because of coronavirus, but now I'm home and just like volunteering for a professor and some uh, other things. Awesome. Gabby? Yes. So I also graduated in 2019. Um, I majored in international relations and a minor in human rights. Um, After graduation, I moved to Madrid, Spain with Fulbright, um, where I was an English teaching assistant um, at one of the universities um, in the area. Um, And I was a TA in a bunch of different courses related to law, negotiation, public diplomacy, international relations. Um, I'm now, unfortunately, my grant was cut short and I am back in New York, um, but I am really excited for sort of my next um, chapter where I'll be a paralegal with the Legal Aid Society um, and I'll be with their law reform unit, um, specifically working with their homeless rights 
population. So I'm really excited for sort of that, that next journey and feel lucky that, that that's, uh, that's where I'm heading next. Man, that sounds exciting. Yeah. Um, so maybe you guys could tell us a little bit about like your journey, like to Stanford and how you found the human rights center and the, the human rights minor. Um, and, and like why you, uh, why you felt like studying human rights was something that you wanted to do. Um, so Anjali, do you want to go? Um, sure. um, because I'm Canadian, uh, I actually chose to go to university in the U.S. because you could sort of do a liberal arts or interdisciplinary um, major or study. Uh, whereas in Canada, if you study engineering, you really can't do that. So I knew I wanted to go to a university that would allow me to you know, study engineering or something in the sciences, but also let me uh, integrate that with my other interests and passions in like development, social justice and human rights. Um, so it was always at the back of my mind. Um, and then I audited the introduction to human rights my freshman year, the first time it was offered. Um, but I kind of got overwhelmed and like really didn't think about it until my junior year when I remember sitting down with Jesse and she's like, we can make this human rights minor work. Um, and then I <laughs> Jesse, also, for, for those of you who don't know, Jesse Bruner is um, one of the staff members at the Human Rights Center. And she's very um, uh, <laughs> excited about promoting the minor. <laughs> so. Yes, and it worked. And I felt like it was a really good accountability measure to make sure that I'm committing to the things I care about, which one of them is human rights. Um, so it made me take a lot of interesting classes and like get connected to a really incredible community as well. So yeah, that's how I found human rights, I guess. Yeah, Gabby, was, was your path similar? Kind of. Um, I, so I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, um, and I sort of had the privilege of being in a high school that was very connected to what was going on um, in social justice movements in New York City in general. So it was very plugged into current events in that way. Um, so in high school, I was exposed, you know, I had students um, at my high school that were organizing walkouts for Black Lives Matter movements. And we had our first teach-in at a public New York City high school. And I think it was like 25 years happened at um, my high school, my senior year, where students were teaching each other about gender and socioeconomic status and race. Um, so I was having these conversations, I think, um, you know, through high school from, a, from you know, the time of high school. Um, and I also am a first generation daughter of immigrants, grew up low income in New York City. So I think, you know, questions of inequality were something that I had to confront, regardless if I, if I wanted to or not, it's just sort of part of my, um, part of my daily experience living in New York. Um, and so when I got to Stanford, I, you know, had all these questions. And then all of a sudden, I had this sort of educational privilege to be able to answer some of those questions in the coursework that I was taking. Um, so that's sort of how I got um, involved in, in the Honda Center, um, which was what it was called at the time. Um, but yeah, so that's, I think that's, that's how I describe my journey. Um, but it also just started with me taking classes and things I was interested in. Um, I think one of the first classes I took was the human trafficking interdisciplinary perspectives. I forget the formal title, but, um, that was an eye-opening, you know, eye-opening course. Cause not only, um, did it have this sort of legal aspect that I think I already knew I was, you know, intrinsically interested in, but then you also had sort of the historical perspective and the medical perspective. Um, and that by far is one of my favorite classes. Um, and also introduced me to Professor Beth Van Schack, who I'm sure we all know and love. Um, she's a star of the center. Yeah. 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 And she, I mean, I think just, I guess watching her lecture definitely, um, 
sort of motivated me and inspired me to get more involved in human rights at Stanford because um, I was so inspired with you know, how brilliant she is. <laughs> I'm sure we'll also talk, touch on this a little bit later as well. Um, but one thing that I found really important throughout is just mentors and people who will take the time to sit with you and chat with you. And um, I think my biggest introduction to the Human Rights Center was first through um, through Beth, but then also, again, the wonderful staff, um, Jesse and Penelope in, in the in the center, you know, they're willing to sit down and talk with you. And for me, that was that like one-on-one -on -one attention was so important in getting me um, further involved mm -hmm. in in the coursework. So and also and also David Cohen, he is a gem <laughs> yeah, in terms of director. mentoring students and sitting down with them. Always at Koopa Cafe <laughs> <laughs> at the GSB. Um, but David yeah, Cohen. I just want to echo what Gabby said. Yeah, David Cohen, who's the director of the center, is infamous um for ha holding office hours at Koopa, Koopa Cafe in the Graduate School of Business so um um yeah I guess you know thinking back like now in retrospect I think like I remember being a student and having a you know my spreadsheet for all of the classes that I wanted to take and normally there are classes because they were requirements so you don't have the goal of the major but looking back now like what are the classes that sort of stand out to you guys and like why were they important you know so thinking about like where the you know you you gabby you mentioned mentorship but like what what are the classes that you felt were important to take i can speak a little bit to this um the classes that i think were the most important for me were the ones that were the least traditional in terms of their structure um so it's actually I feel bad talking about it because it's not available to undergrads anymore, but there's a class um, that's now offered through the master's program co-taught by Stedman and Fukuyama, I believe still co-teach it, um, called Leadership and Implementation. And I took that class at the end of my sophomore year and it's not directly related to the human rights minor, but I believe I was able to petition it um, to count towards sort of my credits for the minor. Um, and the reason that class was so formative for me both in the human rights space, but also in the international relations space is the entire course is built around case study learning. So you're reading case studies every week and figuring out, okay, if you're the sort of representative from, you know, the health department in India, how are you solving this problem versus, you know, if you're the, you know, prime minister of X country, how are you handling this problem? Um, and I think for me, it was really instrumental in sort of gaining sort of practical, realistic, case study experience. Um, and I would say like generally I've learned the most from doing, um, whether that's like <laughs> writing a thesis, which Anjali can also talk about, or um, internships that I've done or classes that were very um, interactive and very hands-on. Um, so I would recommend sort of that as, as a way to sort of figure out what element of human rights or what element of international relations or what element of whatever coursework you're trying to learn more about. Because um, doing for me was, was really instrumental in that regard. Um, in a little bit of contrast to Gabby, I'd say my biggest influence in terms of thinking about human rights or getting into it were really classes that kind of changed the way I thought about things. So they were more theoretical. Uh, the biggest one being, I've talked about this a lot and. <laughs> any human rights thing I've ever done, but the class called Antigone and Political Descent, uh, which is taught by Resh Rehm, and it's co-taught through like classics and the TAPS department. And the whole point of the class is pretty much like from the beginning, kind of asks you the question, like what is worth dying for? Um, and that's kind of reflected in Antigone's choice as well. Um, 
if you don't know what Antigone is, it's a Greek tragedy by Sophocles about um, a woman who has to make the choice between or following her king or following God's wishes. Um, and it ties in a lot of themes of like moral obligation, um, what's worth dying for and like what's worth like what are the extremes you would go to follow through with what you believe in. Um, and in that class, he really forces you to kind of like think outside what you understand success to be or what it means to have a meaningful life. Um, and that's when I really solidified my thinking that like I knew I wanted to spend my life serving others in a meaningful way and I could do that. And even if I'm just one person, one person is more than enough to do at least something small. Um, and I think it really took that like mindset shift that happened in that class and like the critical thinking that it gave me um, to in a way be brave enough to you know study engineering and not do the same things as um, some of the other people in my class or the people who were studying the same thing as me. Another class that I'll also give a quick that what um, Anjali said reminded me of was a course called intergroup communication um, and it's one that I actually was involved with throughout my whole four years at Stanford um, but it's a course where the basis of the course is discussing from personal experience um, your you know, experience with race, socioeconomic status, gender, and sexual orientation. And it's sort of a narrative-based class. And for me, um, that class was incredibly instrumental in learning how narrative plays such a strong role in understanding and deconstructing, you know, these sort of broader systems and, and sort of the intricacies of you know, human rights more broadly that I think is sometimes very abstract. Learning from narrative really grounds that abstraction in um, something real and human. Um, and so I also, I mean, I poured my life into that class and I hope everyone <laughs> takes it because it's a great course. Um, but yeah, intergroup communication would be the other one. Yeah, I was just thinking, um, Anjali, when you were talking that, um, you know, you decided to do engineering. And I think there's sometimes this like stereotype that like human rights people, like they're either political science or, you know, the, as the term at Stanford is like the fuzzies. Um, so like, how, like, how did you, how did you, like one, I guess, like logistically as an engineering student, did you feel like it was possible or did you feel like it was really, really hard to fit your, um, requirements in to do engineering and human rights and then how did kind of being part of something that seem as two um, disparate worlds like feel and your experience of it? I guess I'll start with the how it feels to be part of kind of two different worlds so even in high school academically I'd always sort of lean towards more of the sciences because you were limited in the number of classes you could take but outside of school all my extracurriculars were to do with like women's rights or gender inequality and raising awareness about that um, and I want, I knew when I went to college again that I wanted to kind of combine those two interests. Um, and I really didn't know how, so I kind of plotted down the same path of academically really doing a lot of engineering or science and then sort of extracurriculars or on the side doing a lot of human rights. And it was my goal by the end to figure out how to integrate them. And that's something I'm still dealing with. Um, but I will say in terms of um, feeling alienated in like engineering or human rights, I think the alienation came more from engineering, the engineering side of people like not really valuing or understanding uh, the purpose of, you know, pursuing something that isn't just technical or isn't for financial success or 
that kind of thing. Um, so I found myself a lot of the time justifying like why I cared about human rights or why I was taking like an English class for fun, um, which I didn't have to do in the human rights space. And that's why it was so lovely because it was like a community of really supportive people that like regardless of what I studied, because I cared about, you know, similar things to everybody else, it was really accepting. And, and that's definitely what like supported me through it and kept me going um, in terms of pursuing engineering while also taking human rights classes. And then in terms of like the practical aspect of fitting everything, I had to make some sacrifices. So I never studied abroad like during the year, but I spent all my summers abroad. So I made that work, but um, it was really doable. And the human rights minor is pretty flexible. And there were like classes that would help with my major. For example, I took the data challenge lab, which is just like uh, social sciences slash data science course. Um, and it really helped me with both like human rights stuff because I could do social science like human rights data things but also in my engineering courses because it gave me a foundation in data science so um, the staff at the center are incredibly helpful in like helping it work for you and like fitting it with your schedule um, so honestly in the end it was a lot more practical and a lot easier to do than I thought it would be because I always thought I could never make minor in anything um, but yeah it worked it worked pretty well yeah I'm so glad it did um, yeah, Gabby, you know, did you feel that as well within like the wider Stanford community, even if not maybe specifically in your major or maybe maybe in your major um, that you had to justify why you were studying human rights? I don't know if it was a justification more than I if, and I've, I've said this before to people I've talked to about sort of what it's like to be a quote unquote fuzzy, but I think it's less a justifying of what you're studying and more like I felt like I constantly had to prove why like that I was smart enough or that I was like what you know the skills that I had garnered were you know I don't know unique enough or you know I don't know I don't even know what sort of adjective no I totally I mean I feel that too and I'm like yeah. guilty of it like when I say oh I'm minoring in human rights I'll be like but I'm actually studying engineering too you know to like because right. right. there is some like social clout or credit you get yeah and and I yeah I feel like yeah, there's this sucks. like automatic assumption that if you're studying STEM then you're gaining these like hard skills that you would yeah. gain otherwise whereas you have to really I felt like I had to really justify mm -hmm. um sort of my intelligence it sounds really really weird but very casual and sort of off the cuff if I'm you know being totally honest I mm -hmm. constantly feel like I had to justify that you know I can make a good argument and I you know know a lot about you know xyz subject or whatever it is um but with that said I did find a really supportive wonderful community um, of people that are interested in the things that I am interested in and you know I wouldn't trade that for anything um, and part of that was sort of how I decided to do Stanford so you know I went to Stanford in Washington my junior fall and then the semester or quarter after I went to Cape Town um, and both of those programs I think were so wonderful to remind me that I'm doing the right thing if that makes sense because mm -hmm. um, I was surrounded by a cohort of people that all wanted to do what I wanted to do um, they all had different reasons of being there. Everyone had different sort of focuses. Um, but at the end of the day, we all shared this sort of commonality that I hadn't actually experienced at Stanford before. Um, so those spaces exist. It's just, you know, mm -hmm. finding them. Um, and the community, the nice thing is the community is small enough that you end up getting really close to the people in your major or that are studying your, you know, in your minor in this case. Um, and yeah, you kind of find yourselves, right? Like, yeah. you know, we all found ourselves in CDDRL, then we all found <laughs> ourselves in DC and, you know. And I will say on that note, like in the comparison between kind of what you get out of maybe like a 
more STEM classes and humanities classes that like the one, the classes that really influenced the way I think or like had a profound, meaningful yeah. impacted me always tended to be humanities classes. And I really realized like people who don't take those classes for whatever reason are really missing out on something. And it is really important, like not just to take a ways like humanity class, um, just because you have to, but like put in the effort and like, that's what college is for. It's like change the way you think and open your mind to different ideas and things. Um, and yeah, I'm really glad that I had this other side to my education as well. And I also would say that once I left Stanford too, um, I was sort of reminded at how mm -hmm. amazing the programs at Stanford are that are in the humanities and social sciences. Like I think at Stanford, it always felt like, you know, there was more emphasis put on STEM. And I, I believe that even with sort of career, I mean, we'll get to the mm -hmm. sort of post-grad stuff, but I do think that there are resources lacking in the social sciences and humanities fields. Mm -hmm. And I definitely felt that as a student. But then once I left, I also realized how remarkable those programs are and how much I learned. And Stanford's still this amazing mm -hmm. place that offers all of these opportunities that are really unique. Um, and yeah, I will carry those with me for you know, forever, so. <laughs> Yeah, I guess going to that that resources point, I mean, you went, mentioned Stanford in Washington. Um, Anjali, you mentioned going abroad in the summer. So like, what were some of the like non, um, like non academic classes experiences that mm -hmm. like you felt were really meaningful or impactful? Um, I can go. So one of, it was really fun as well as interesting and impactful was, uh, the summer seminars that you can do through the Bing Overseas program. So I think there are two types, the faculty ones, and then just the regular seminars where you go to a city. So I went to Florence um, and you take classes for two weeks and like experience the city. Um, but my program only had like one or two classes in the morning and the rest of the day, you could go explore the different museums um, and look at art. So the topic was like, faith in classical science and Renaissance Florence. So how did like art and science intersect? Um, so that was really fun and it was amazing. Um, and then the other non-academic things I did were both the summer internships slash uh, fellowships I did. So the first one was at UNHCR and it was a Stanford in government, which is a student group um, run fellowship. Um, and that was in Geneva. And then the next summer I applied for just a grant with an organization that I found. And then I also got research funding through uh, UAR, what is it, Undergraduate Advising and Research, um, to do research in Malawi for my thesis. Incredible. Yeah, there's just so many. Um, yeah. Oh, and then another one I did that I actually thought was really cool is the Hoover Silas Palm Palmer Archival Fellowship. So you just end up, you just like have to do a research proposal about how you're going to use the archives in a specific way and then write like a 500 um, word piece about what you learned and it was really easy and like a fun way just to um, force yourself to go to the archives and write something and I'd recommend a lot of people to, like a lot of people don't know about that one but it was really fun <laughs> and then you also get some money so that's awesome. Yeah I did that as well and I do. Oh okay. Um, the Hoover archives and the yes. Green Library archives are some like just such a fantastic resource and people say archive work is really boring but I find it oh. so fun and interesting and I actually spent my birthday in the archives <laughs> my freshman year um that was what I wanted to do I mean you can read like diary entries from 
70 years ago. Oh, so much good stuff in the yeah. archives. Like people don't know. <laughs> but yeah, Gabby, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I would say another sort of, you know, I am, and I mentioned this, but one of the biggest, um, things that influenced my Stanford experience and how I understood how sort of the field works generally was through internships. When I got to college, I mean, everyone says they feel sort of imposter syndrome. I felt like I knew nothing. I didn't have any family friends doing anything in the field related to anything policy related. You know, it's like I felt like I was truly um, sort of navigating everything um, on my own for the first time and I had no sort of direction but doing internships were so, so, so valuable. Like I not only met amazing mentors, but also just being in an organization and figuring out how it works is so, so valuable. So um, for example, the summer after my sophomore year, I got an internship with the State Department. And the only reason that I even knew to apply to the State Department was because I had a friend who was applying to the State Department. And she was like, oh, I think you'd like it. So I like randomly sent an application. I frankly, to be honest, didn't know how the State Department worked. And then I was there for 10 weeks and I came away with this like sort of institutional knowledge that was so instrumental in learning about how international relations and international human rights works um, from the U.S. perspective, at least. Um, and then the summer after that, I was with the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, which also I knew nothing about Congress. I'm going to be honest, I had no idea how legislation was passed. Um, but in 10 weeks, I learned so, so much. And it was being in the environment that was um, really helpful for that learning. Um, and for the first, for the State Department, I got a grant from Stanford and government. They funded that internship. And then the Honda Center funded um, my summer at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So I also would not have been able to do any of that without the financial support from Stanford, which I always um, felt was, was plentiful and available. Um, and I feel really lucky that I was able to benefit from those resources. Um, I also did a sophomore college, which was really cool. It was my first time in DC. I did the um, one on campus sexual assault with Professor Michelle Dauber. Um, yeah, and it was just so, it was so cool to be in DC and like be sitting in these, you know, boardrooms with really important people talking about something that I cared so much about. Um, and then again, yeah, as I mentioned, I did Stanford in Washington, which is also an internship. So for people who don't know, um, you work essentially nine to five and then you take classes at night. Um, and there I was working with Brookings, um, which is a think tank in DC, had no idea what think tanks were like, learned that very quickly in 10 weeks. Um, and then in Cape Town, you also have the option of doing an internship. So I worked at a nonprofit um, providing direct services to refugees and migrants in Cape Town, South Africa. So again, I had never worked in, a, in an NGO um, environment, and that was really instrumental in learning what that was like. Um, so yeah, I really essentially used, you know, my time at Stanford to have these sort of crash courses in how different organizations deal with international human rights. Um, and for me, that was sort of the best way that I was able to learn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was thinking, you know, one of the things that I thought a lot about as a student or I felt like, uh, or, or I felt unequipped to think about was like pathways into mm -hmm. human rights careers. I, I wasn't sure if I was because I grew up on the, the West Coast, um, which is, you know, can sometimes be less politically um, minded than the East Coast or because my family are all in medicine. Um, but mm -hmm. I just felt like I didn't have kind of like you said, like a sense of like what what would a pathway to human rights career um, look like um or people to like help guide me so like how did you guys think about that like thinking about what you wanted um your future career pathways to look like um 
so you mentioned internships but 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 other ways that that um kind of like helped you envision the resources that you you could draw on i think the biggest one for me was just having mentors who helped me when i really didn't know what i wanted to do and kind of straight up said like we can't i can't tell you what you're going to do or what your life's going to look like but like that you're capable and you're smart and like there will be people for you who will guide you through that um an example that like kind of comes to mind that was pretty recent is i didn't like a lot of stuff that i applied for didn't really work out my senior year and i didn't get exactly the things i wanted and i didn't really want to rush into any um sort of position that i wasn't interested in and i am like financially privileged enough that I don't have to support my parents and I had enough money saved that I could kind of sustain myself for a little bit without like a traditional job. And I remember talking to David Cohn about this and just saying, I don't know what to do. And I don't really want to do something just for the sake of it. Um, I kind of want to explore a little bit. And he told me this story about how uh, a while back he um, rented a car in Europe and like went across Europe and like didn't really, you know, think about like doing a job or doing something like particularly academic and just traveled. Um, and that really helped me be like, okay, if I do want to travel and, you know, just see a lot of the places that I want to work in or that like, frankly, like um, that I wrote papers on and I'd never seen or never visited and never talked to people from a lot of countries that like I researched um, that it was okay and that I could do that and it wouldn't like ruin my life or it wouldn't just because I wasn't doing what everybody else was doing. It wasn't any less worth it. I'm just and just having his support and even he talked to my mom at graduation and was like don't worry your daughter will be fine um this is a like cool and fun thing to do um and she'll definitely learn a lot from it really really helped and it just made me feel like I wasn't making the wrong choice because this person that I look up to and had a, like a really cool and successful career in academics like says it's okay to do as well so even if I still didn't have like a path, clear pathway in front of me, just having the support to know that whatever path I chose um, would be the right one uh, really helped me with the anxiety and uncertainty I felt. Absolutely. I think that's a great, great point. And I, mentors was going to be something that I, um, that I mentioned. Um, the reason also why my sort of internship experience was so formative was because of the people that I met. Um, and this is something that I wish I had been sort of told earlier because I didn't, I don't think I quite realized how important it was until after I graduated, but um, sort of networking. And I know that sounds mm -hmm. like such a stiff, like not great term, but it's so important. And I have done all kinds of networking. I mean, I've, you know, reached out to like friends of friends to like randomly messaged people on LinkedIn who I saw had a job that I wanted. Um, and I, people are so willing to give you their time. It is remarkable, especially as I found in the human rights space. Um, so I've literally randomly messed, you know, if I'm applying to a job at an organization, I'll message someone who I see either went to Stanford, so alumni networks are really useful, um, or just someone who like looks like we would have something in common. Um, and I will like randomly message them on LinkedIn. Um, and nine times out of 10, I've gotten a positive response. Um, and that's just been helpful more than anything than like actually getting a job from those connections, just seeing what's possible mm -hmm. and like seeing how people like, how did you literally get from point A to point B? Like, I want to know every single step in the process. And you hear stories like, yeah, I mean, I took a year off because I couldn't get a job and then I decided to do this. And then I, you know, it's like, you realize how flexible life can be. And it's such a relief to like be hearing from people that have jobs that you one day want and how sort of mismatched their 
career path to get there was and how it's not linear and it's not this perfect sort of set out um, formula. And I think that for me, realizing that, I think I realized that like going into my senior year um, was so important um, because it relieved a little bit of that anxiety and stress of like, oh, what do I do? I'm not going into consulting, so I don't have this clear path. And I'm not in tech, so I didn't do an internship that led to my, you know, job after graduation. And, you know, um, there are a lot of question marks within sort of this space. And I think um, that becomes a little easier to digest when you realize that everyone has had to navigate those question marks and it can be messy and it still works out um, if you're a hard worker and and apply yourself. so yeah, so I think that that would be my my biggest advice is um, ask your contacts to connect you to the people that they know, reach out to people. It can be awkward, but also people are really kind. Um, and I've learned learned a lot from those conversations along the way. And just on the note of networking, I like to talk a lot, but actually reaching out to people I don't know or talking to them makes me really anxious and nervous and I get really stressed. And one thing that I found really helped me was actually just using like the Stanford alumni network. Like, Mm -hmm. so there's an actual database where you can type in like someone's name, their job or where they're located. Um, And in all the like different places I worked in, well, not in Lesotho, but in uh, Malawi and in Geneva, I found a bunch of Stanford alumni and it was a lot easier to talk to them than to random people in the organizations because we had this like Stanford connection. So I had right. this really long conversation with someone who'd done their undergrad 40 years ago. And she was like, what are the dorms now? Like I stayed <laughs> in this one, I stayed in this one. And like, I don't know, for some reason, just knowing that we had this established connection and like the shared experience really, really helped like um, me feel a lot more comfortable talking and then moving on to like, oh, a, to talk about their career and stuff like that. So that is something that I found really, really helpful. And you can use the alumni database even before you're an alumni. So, yeah. Yeah, I wonder too um, what your guys' senior year experience was like. I know you guys both mentioned you did honors theses, um, which I should note for the undergrads listening, you're not required to do, but can be a wonderful experience, even if it is stressful. Um, so, like, Maybe, I mean, talk us through, like, you know, senior year is kind of a mix of stuff. It's your last year, so you want to be part of, you know, your undergrad experience, but you also kind of have one foot out the door. You're looking forward. You're trying to do job applications. You're trying to get the most out of your classes and your friends and, uh, your, you know, the Stanford network and also doing a thesis. So, like, what did that year feel like to you? Like, what were the ups and downs? Like, what did you, what do you think about looking back? Um, you know, what do you think? I guess I can start. Um, I think I had the, I had been lucky that a lot of the classes that I took while I had done my programs sort of off campus, um, counted towards my major and minor. So by my senior year, my course load was not, I think at the forefront of my attention. Like it was, you know, I was taking normal amount of classes, but I'd sort of taken the bulk of my sort of curriculum and I was sort of focusing on things like my thesis, my human rights capstone, um, hanging out with my friends, you know, you know, doing all those things that that you want to do before, you know, you graduate. Um, I, so I will, I will say though, my winter quarter was definitely a lot because that's when your thesis is sort of at its peak. Um, I also took, um, Dr. Condoleezza Rice's course which is the hardest class I've ever taken and will ever take. Um, 
it was very, very demanding, but also, I mean, the most rewarding course as well. Um, if anyone has a chance to learn from her, I highly recommend it. Um, but, but yeah, so I think, I think once that died down, my senior spring was definitely a time that I focused on sort of my social, um, relationships, um, and sort of just enjoying my last 10 weeks in, in Palo Alto. Um, but I think I'm trying to think of a better, maybe Anjali can step in. And then when I've thought a little bit more about this question, I'll, sure. I'll jump back um, in. I think my experience was pretty similar to Gabby's and that my academics wasn't at the forefront, but for me, it still wasn't, um, I don't know, I had this weird like dissonance between this idea of like, oh, it's senior year, it's gonna be all fun, like Camp Stanford. Um, but then I actually was taking a lot of courses and I was doing my thesis and I felt like a little upset for the beginning of my senior year, thinking like, oh, this is supposed to all be fun, but here I am at Green Library, like Friday mm. night at 10 p.m. Um, <laughs> and especially my winter quarter, I kind of made a mistake of like, it's the worst time for your thesis and I also took the data challenge lab, which is an incredible class, mm. but meets every day and you have homework due every day except for Sunday um and it kind of sucked the life out of me and so I'd say like senior year really was like some of the lowest lows I've had at Stanford but also the highest highs especially in spring quarter um I also just focused on like having fun with my friends and like the last 10 weeks at Stanford um and doing a lot of things that I wish I did like going to a lot more talks and stuff um and just yeah, I don't know, like sitting outside in the sun, not yeah. really doing too much. But the beginning was definitely a bit of an uphill battle. Um, but I think it was worth it. Like my thesis was probably the biggest project I've worked on in my entire life. Um, and it took like a whole year, year and a bit. Um, and like looking back, I can't believe I wrote something that long and I put <laughs> so much effort into something. So it's just really cool to think that you can do it. But. Yeah. And also, I guess I'll speak a little bit to um, sort of the job hunt process. Mm. I think so. I ended up, I, along with sort of, I think a lot of my, a lot of my friends were really anxious about the, the time, the timelines of everything. So for, you know, traditionally in the sort of international relations, social sciences, human rights space, the timeline for hiring is like, two months before you start. Um, and so for the majority of my sort of friends and, and people I was surrounding myself with, I mean, they already had jobs secured in September. So there was this difference in mindset between me and a lot of the people I knew between, you know, I, you know, I'm spending my senior year thinking about what's next, whereas most people can kind of enjoy senior year for what it is. Um, and I don't want to say most people because I actually don't know that, but it feels like most people. And it probably, <laughs> it probably isn't most people. Yeah. So, um, but that's definitely how it feels. Um, and I think the reason, I will say the way that I handled it, which I'm really happy in the end that I did not pursue this path, but the, reason, the way that I ended up dealing with that stress was applying for a job at an international corporate law firm um, because they were hiring. I think I got hired in October. Um, and all of the fellowships that I was applying for um, weren't going to let me know until like April. And I was like, well, I don't, what if in April I don't get this fellowship, one fellowship I applied for? And then, you know, I have to find a way to pay the bills. You know, it's a very um, logistically difficult question to answer when you're, you know, have loans or you have bills to pay or you have to support your mm -hmm. parents. Um, and so I did end up applying. Um, and in the end, obviously did not end up pursuing that, um, job opportunity because I ended up getting, um, 
getting the Fulbright, which was an amazing sort of gift that 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 came to to fruition. Um, but I don't know if I hadn't, I that's my that might have been what I ended up doing for a year um, because it paid well and I needed you know some sort of job security. Um, with that said, I think the biggest piece of advice that I will have is it's okay to apply to a lot of things and it's okay if you have the time um, to apply to a variety of things if you need that sort of security um, of sort of you know working in the private sector then I don't think anyone's going to judge you for that although it's a very hard decision and I think for a lot of us in the human rights space it's a really hard thing to say like I actually do need to have some sort of you know plan C um, and that might not be my dream job right um, and I think that was also another thing that I had to learn the hard way was that nobody is doing their dream job even yeah. though everyone yes. makes it seem like they've got yes. their dream job like, we're 100%. all 22 like we oh just graduated like you only have a bachelor's like nobody yeah. like curing cancer when they get it's like I mean maybe some, oh, yes. some people yeah. are but most people are not um and I think that was really difficult for me because it yes. felt like I could not find the perfect job I was like mm-hmm. nothing everything feels like it's not quite what I want or not quite there. Or not, and it's like, that's because you're 22 and you're not supposed to have yes, this. Exactly. Like, um, there's supposed to be, you know, things that you prioritize. Um, and everything is so like, it's not, nothing's set in stone. I mean, you can mm-hmm. have a job. I know friends who've had jobs for six months and are ready to leave. You know, it's like everything's so, I guess, I don't know, flexible in that regard. Yeah. Um, even though it seems so set in stone, it's like, oh, this is, job is going to define my life for the rest yes. of time. It's like, yes. no, it's um, well, I agree with that so much. I feel <laughs> like that was sort of the thinking I had my senior year. And I realize now kind of how negative and detrimental it was. Yeah. Um, and I know a lot of like professors and stuff, like my thesis advisor was telling me, it's like first job, it doesn't really matter. Just like, doesn't. <laughs> as long as you don't hate it or like you like it a little bit or there's some redeeming quality about it, you should do it. And I was like, no, I want to find the perfect <laughs> one. Um, and like a year later, I'm like, oh, damn, he's right. Um, right. But I just, I wish, I don't know, somehow someone sat me down, like looked me in the eye and was like, it's not going to be perfect. Um, and it's not going to define the rest of your life. You're exactly, you're 22 with a bachelor's degree. Like you're not going to like maybe sometimes you're going to have to get someone coffee. Like that's not the end right. of the world. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, right. And I think yeah, taking time now that I've thought about it and like understand that, yeah, that it is okay. And like yeah. your life doesn't have to have some like grand narrative of, yes. okay, right after college, I'm going to do this. And then after that, I'm going to do this. Like it's okay to have like some dead ends or some paths that don't lead anywhere because that shows you um, what you don't like and maybe will help you lead to something that you do like. And I would say with that, I think what's most important is figuring out what you want to prioritize. So I know for some of my friends um, and people that I've just sort of talked to, what they want to prioritize is being in an organization, right? Like Mm -hmm. they just want to be surrounded by the people that are doing the work that they want to do, even if the job isn't 100% what they want. Or I know some people who, you know, want a certain skill set or some people who really want to work abroad or some people who, and Anjali can probably testify to this as well. Like I prioritized my personal well-being because I did not do, I mean, the job that I had in Madrid was great, but it was not directly linked to my um, sort of career path in any sort of yeah. direct way. Um, but it was, I worked 18 hours a week and I lived in one of the most beautiful cities in <laughs> Europe. And I like lived, I lived, you know, like I was so burnt yes, out yeah. that I like really lived. Yes. Um, and like had time for the first time in what felt like forever. So yeah. I think learning 
that it's okay to prioritize yourself is also if you can and like the opportunity presents itself is okay Mm because I think I went through a lot of self-doubt of like I should be at a law firm and I should be you know doing xyz and you know and that's ridiculous I realize now you know yeah yeah exactly 100% like and also I think when you take yourself out of some of those spaces like not at a law firm or a tech company at least for me and Gabby maybe it's similar like you meet a lot of people who aren't in that kind of Stanford or like elite school bubble where it's just like go 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 and I met so many people on so many different timelines and it really just made me take a breath like realize wow like humans live really long now like there's no rush (laughs) there's absolutely no rush to figure out exactly what you want to do by the age of 24 like that is also unrealistic and there's also no point like just because you've done something to keep doing it, like it's okay to quit and like turn around and do something else. Um, and yeah. And on the practical aspect, I also learned that like, for me, at least traveling in the way I did it sort of like backpacking was actually a lot cheaper than I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. So if anybody's interested, um, you can talk to me about it. And I was shocked. I did not spend that much money. It was like a quarter of the price of like living in like a big city in the U S um, which was amazing. Um, and so I would recommend it if you have the ability and the means and like you can take that time. I would totally recommend doing something that you wouldn't normally do, like traveling or like, you know, the Fulbright or something like that. Even if it doesn't directly relate to your like final destination or yeah. like dream job that you envision for yourself. Yeah, I was kind of wondering what you guys, I mean, you kind of touched on it, but like the post Stanford transition and whether you felt burnt out or, or like how you felt now navigating in a non-Stanford space. Because like, for me, I think like, like, like you guys were saying, like it was, Stanford was so go, go, go. And the quarter system is just like so fast. And then Stanford as a place cultivates FOMO, um, fear of missing out. And Mm -hmm. so it was, I found it very difficult to then transition uh, to a non-Stanford pace of life. realizing that my inability to transition was actually a sign of you know maybe being a bit burnt out so kind of how did you guys feel navigating you know that those first couple of months after Stanford did you feel burnt out did you feel sort of or I think I had a lot of like resentment like I wanted to keep going at the Stanford pace and (laughs) the treadmill was just going slower (laughs) yeah I was extremely burnt out like at least for like the month of June and a bit of July before I started traveling, I just could not bring myself to do anything but watch TV. I probably watched like 15 TV shows and just slept. And it was absurd. <laughs> I've never done that in my life. Awesome. I just like was exhausted emotionally, physically, mentally. And like, I don't know, I really couldn't do anything else. I wish I could. I was like trying to read a book and I would just fall asleep. So I just let myself watch a lot of TV and like, that's okay. And I kind of saw people, some people around me, like doing internships, like working really hard. And I was like, man, I wish I could be that person, but yeah. I'm just not. And like, that is okay. And that's what I need to be like a sustainable human being for the rest of my life. Yeah. I mean, I don't think I realized how burnt out I was until I moved to Madrid and realized mm-hmm. how different the pace of life is there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I definitely struggled with it at the beginning. I mean, as I mentioned, like I was working 18 hours a week. My job is not particularly difficult. I found it, it came pretty naturally to me. Um, you know, that, 
you know, it's like I have this moment of like, how do I fill the rest of my time? Like, yeah. you know, it's like, and then I, you know, over a couple of months was like, oh, I can go sit in a coffee shop and have a conversation with my friends for three hours on a Wednesday afternoon yes. and that's okay. And like, you look around, <laughs> yeah. and everyone else is doing the same thing. Um, so yeah, so I think I, I definitely took me a while to get used to it, but I also think that was the biggest lesson that I've learned this year is how important taking time is Mm -hmm. with that said it also made me so ready like I'm so ready now to do the job that I'm about to start um and I know it's going to be so much more difficult both emotionally frankly and also um professionally and and you know it it will be challenging in sort of a a series of different ways um but I'm so ready for that challenge and to feel like I'm so ready to like hunker down and you know do the nine to six or whatever it is um I think was a really good reminder that I did what I needed to do this year um, yeah. and taking time was such a blessing um, because yeah, I think it will also give me sort of the energy to do my job in the way that, that it should be done. Um, and yeah. when we're working with vulnerable populations, I mean, we talk about this in the human rights space all the time, but mm-hmm. how are you supposed to give yourself um, if you are not giving to yourself, right? You can't be a good advocate mm-hmm. for people um, if you are not in a good headspace. Um, and if you can have sort of the privilege to take that time, I mean, I would 100% recommend it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Also, just on that note, too, um, I found that at Stanford, anytime I had any free time, I felt like I just wanted to sleep or like hang out with my friends or just relax completely. Um, and while tra- like transitioning to not being burnt out anymore, I realized, like, wow, I forgot all these interests that I had naturally that, like, because I, wasn't forcing myself to do a lot of things. It just came out like I started wanting to read like books or papers just mm-hmm. for fun. And I forgot I had these interests and like they were always there, but it was just a well, lot Stanford. My brain was just stretched to its limit that even in my free time, like I had no more capacity. Um, and it was really reassuring that it was like, okay, I actually like these things. I'm not just forcing myself to do it. Um, and like recognizing that, yeah, I have interests outside of like the school and the stuff I was taking. It wasn't just like these external forces making me do stuff that I myself inside wanted to do these things. And like, that made me feel like whatever I chose or whatever career path or whatever I further studied was more sustainable because it came from inside instead of just, yeah. That's such a good point. Yeah. So I wonder too about then like kind of your guys's first experience, um, like the first thing you did after Stanford. Cause I think like, you have this idea, I don't know, like that the the next thing you do is so permanent and you're going to have to do it for like a significant chunk of time um, in the same way that like committing to Stanford is is in a way committing to four years. So um, how did you guys, did you, did you feel like the first thing you did, like in whatever, um, like however you want to define the first, like the next step, um, like did it go the way you planned? Did it end up being cut short? Did you decide like that, like, you wanted to do it or like, and how did you figure out, like, how did you think about knowing when it was time for the next step? I think for me, it was pretty easy because I was on a nine, it was a nine month grant. So I knew that I was going to be there for nine months. Um, and that was it. And obviously I think at the time of coronavirus, I hope people are realizing <laughs> that things can change at a, you know, moment's notice, um, was definitely sort of a very abrupt, I mean, school was canceled in Madrid and I think we were all joking about where we were going to go like travel that weekend like we were like oh we have two weeks off like great and then we were sent home by the end of the week um so definitely an abrupt transition um 
I always knew that my nine months was going to be my nine months. And then I was going to come back and do something that was more related to what I want to do long-term. With that said, things change all the time. I found it really difficult to find an entry path into something that was international human rights related in a way that I wanted it to be. That was like really direct, like sort of client services that was very sort of hands-on. Um, and so then I kind of had to switch my mindset and go into the domestic space. So now I'm, you know, my job's going to be hyper-local. I'll be working in New York City. Um, and that was something I did not expect, especially since I had like spent this year abroad, you know, I was in this very sort of international mindset. Um, but I think sort of rearranging that mindset again to prioritizing, I was like, I want to prioritize my job, like the actual tasks that I'm doing, not necessarily like the content per se, even though it's all civil rights, human rights related, right? They're not, it's not that far off, but um, even little things like that can, I feel like constrain your options in ways that you don't even realize, you know, mm -hmm. only looking at international opportunities. And then I was like, well, not finding anything I like, maybe I should broaden my search, you know? Um, so that's, I think, yeah. And I think I was just ready sort of to do something that was, yeah, again, just a little more related to what, to what I find interesting. Um, and that will prepare me for law school, which is something that I, you know, I'm pursuing. So I wanted something that was a little bit more um, direct exposure. I guess for me, mine was a little less defined. So I felt, I knew I wanted to take a break in something and I knew I wanted to travel a bit, but I felt kind of guilty about it. So I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to do three months, the equivalent of like a fall quarter. And then I come home in January and find a job. Um, and then when I was there, I was like, I'm not leaving. This has been probably the best time in my whole life. Um, so I decided to stay like for a couple more months. And then I kind of, where were you again, Anjali? Um, so I was in India and I kind of bounced around family. And then I did Singapore, uh, the Java, like the island of Java in Indonesia. And then I went through Cambodia, uh, south to north Vietnam, across through Laos, um, and then Thailand, north to south. And then I did West Malaysia. And then I went to Borneo. And then at that point, that was like five or six months. And I was a little exhausted. So I <laughs> asked David, I'm an alumni now. And I like, David is still amazing and helping me. And I was like, I really want to stay um, because I like living not where I've always lived. Um, and he's like, okay, I'll help you find an internship. So I worked at like a Stanford affiliate organization called LIPE, which uh, does research and workshops um, in improving like the independence of the judiciary in Indonesia. Um, so he helped me get like a two month internship in Indonesia so I could still live abroad and like still travel and um, but do something a little more concrete and have my time structured in a more traditional way. Um, but after that I was going to go back to traveling um, but I came home because of coronavirus. Uh, but that really showed me that like even though I didn't have a definite plan and my plans changed that it was still okay and like at mm -hmm. every moment like going back I'd still think that I'd make, I'd make the same choice. Like I don't regret any of it. Um, but going back to what Gabby said before, it has made me really ready to like find something now that I'm really interested in and, and I want to put a lot of effort and work into, and I feel that I can. And um, just having like the headspace to think about like what I really cared about and what mattered to me and what I naturally gravitate to, or like I'm interested in really prepared me for like this sort of job search in the near future. Um. So I guess like kind of now thinking backwards and forwards, like what advice would you give to your past self um, or to, to current or future undergrads, um, both kind of like your freshman self um, and your senior self? 
I feel like I've mentioned this a ton, but I really want to like hit the nail on the head, but like network, talking to people, yeah. getting to know professors. I mean, like some of my, I've taken classes, not because of the course content, but because of the professor. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, like writing, I didn't think I was going to write a thesis, but Professor Stedman, who ended up being my thesis advisor and um, runs the sort of honors program that Anjali and I did, he reached out to me. You know, it's like, you need people like that in your life who are going to motivate you mm-hmm. and encourage you to do the things that you didn't think to do or you were capable of. Um, I didn't know what a thesis was. I was, I was like, I don't know. I just didn't, it didn't occur to me. And to have someone who knew me um, and knew what I was capable of ask me to consider something of that sort of scale that to me felt unimaginable at the time um, is so, so important. Um, so my freshman self, I wish that I, you know, started getting coffees with professors sooner. Mm-hmm. And it's so intimidating. And I know that. And it's so much easier being where I am now um, and knowing that it'll be okay. But um, yeah, I don't know. Just trust yourself. Yeah. And, you know, professors are also, they're people too. And they have families. And like, you can talk about things that aren't, you know, yeah. the field. <laughs> like they're people, right? Um, so yeah, so I, I can't emphasize it enough. Like reaching yeah. out to people, talking to people, getting to know professors, um, applying, like there are so many things that I applied to that I submitted an application to the void that I thought I would never hear back. And a lot of the times I didn't hear back, but every once in a while, like I did. Um, and that's, I mean, you know, that's just luck at the end of the day. Um, but it also is, that's how it works, you know? Um, so don't ever not apply to something mm-hmm. just because you don't think you're qualified. Cause I definitely missed some opportunities because I thought I wasn't good enough. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, you never know. Um, what else with my freshman yourself? One thing that I think my freshman yourself did do well was take a bunch of classes in yeah. different topics. I think I took like every intro to social science <laughs> that Stanford offered. So I had no idea. I was like, I'll do psychology or sociology or political. So I had no idea. Um, but eventually at the end of my freshman year, I like, I remembered I went through and like tallied all the classes I had taken. And I was like, oh, these happened to all fit into like international relations major like maybe that's what I should do um and that ended up sort of making my making my pathway um so don't be afraid to explore if you have the flexibility I'm sure if you're doing STEM it's so different um but if you have the flexibility don't be afraid to explore a little bit I guess yeah my advice is pretty similar the big one is like exactly like Gabby said reach out to people talk to professors and a good way to do that is just go to office hours like every week and like if you stay long enough there won't be anybody else there. And it's just like a one-on-one meeting and you didn't have to set it up. It just happened. Um, And I wish I did a lot more of that or go to like all the random lectures and uh, on like the Stanford events page, like you can go day by day and they're just really cool things. And like really famous people will come and it's not really publicized. And like often if you just email, if it's like invite only, if you just email the person who's running it, they'll like let you in. Um, And I wish I'd known that to do that since I was a freshman. And I think it's, also, you have this, like, special clout with professors. If you're, like, a really keen freshman, they'll be like, wow, like, so young, so much potential. <laughs> um, and you, like, did this brave thing by coming or asking a question. I remember I asked a question at, like, a, a SEPER event, which is the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research when I was a freshman. And the speaker came up to me afterwards and was like, I'm um, teaching this class, and I think you should take it because your question awesome. was related to it. And I was like, whoa, I'd never thought about taking an econ class before. Like this really cool professor told me to, like, let me do that. Um, 
And then I guess uh, this is a very specific to me, to me as a freshman, but do not take CS106B because you feel like you have to. <laughs> I hated it. It was terrible. And I just, that was one of those instances where like the general moral of that story is like, don't take classes because you feel like you should, or like you feel like you need to be smart in this very specific STEM way. Like CS is not for me. And I wish I listened to my gut for that, but. <laughs> Yeah. And then the last one, just like freshman year, you like take advantage of all the like different opportunities, particularly like financial opportunities that Stanford has. Oh, like, yeah. All the fellowships, the grants, the research advising, like the Chapelugi, which is for your sophomore year, like an arts grant. Yeah. And I know people who did such cool things. I didn't know about it and I kind of wish I did. But yeah, just like keep your eye out for other things and don't like take your classes seriously like work hard but if you don't do well it's not the end of the world like it's not high school where you have to get a perfect gpa and that kind of thing yeah um, i'm not telling you to fail but you know. <laughs> and i also maybe another i'm trying to like transport myself back to freshman year but yeah i think there's there's always a lot of pressure at stanford to be doing a million and one things and that will never go away and that will always be there and it will always i found it both you know the best and worst part super motivating also can be exhausting mm -hmm. um one thing that I found was really useful is by the end, um, I feel like I did try like a lot of things during my time, but I also really stuck with things from freshman to senior year, like the course intergroup communication that I talked about. Um, I stuck with that from a TA to being head TA by the end of my senior year. Um, the Stanford Women's Coalition was a group that I was the co-president of. Um, and I also, from freshman to senior year, that was part of my experience. Um, and so having those things that to me felt consistent was really great in like watching my own growth um, and I was really able to go from just being sort of a passive member um, to actually having some sort of leadership and I've found personally in my sort of interview processes that that's been um, great experience to draw on if you don't um, maybe have an internship or these other sort of more traditional um, I don't know opportunities um, taking leadership within Stanford's campus is something that I'm really grateful that I had experience doing. Um, and was fun because you're doing it with other Stanford students, so it's not all stressful. <laughs> yeah. I guess like take classes that you wouldn't normally take and like if you can, and if they're especially outside your major, don't worry about potentially it not going well or doing badly. And I think that was one of the biggest lessons I ever had is I literally failed a midterm and I thought it would be the end of the world, but like nothing happened. And I still like did fine in the class. So you never know. And like rock bottom or what you think is rock bottom isn't actually the end of the world. And I think more people should have that experience. So you don't like shape your educational journey by fear, but rather like your interests. You've been listening to The Rights Pod a podcast by the Center for Human Rights and International Justice at Stanford University. Thank you so much again to Anjali and Gabby for a wonderful conversation in the first episode of our series, Notes from Alumni. The resources that Anjali and Gabby mentioned throughout the podcast will be available in our show's show notes, so be sure to check them out. Next week, we take a break from the Notes from Alumni series to dive into something just as critical. Harry Potter, and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. To keep human rights close to your home, subscribe to The Rights Pod wherever you get your podcasts. If you're interested in human rights, 
then you're listening to The Rights Pod. The views reflected in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Stanford Center for Human Rights.